Hello and welcome back to another service here at the Altar of Noise. My name is Josh and I didn't screw that up. I'm also joined <laughs> by my fellow music believer, Simon. Simon, my good friend, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Josh. Glad you got it right. Uh, I had to edit out last week's episode because he failed, I believe. I don't know how. I've been doing this for now 20-odd episodes and I still constantly just <laughs> screw up that intro. And we've had to, I don't know, get rid of how many episodes, how many starts because I just lose my mind. But that's okay. That's fine. That's fine. We really? haven't been cancelled. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, you know, there's a there's a lot happening at the moment. How have you been keeping? Yeah, good, good. Winter's come early, really. I mean, it's winter now, but yeah, came a little bit early. Mm. Uh, I like winter. <laughs> it's not good for work, though, but... I like winter, so. Yeah, well, it's the season for hoodies. Yes. Which I am currently wearing one because it's super warm and comfy. Yes, I'm also. Yeah. What <laughs> colour would you call this? I would have said maroon. Yeah. yeah, maroon. It looks nice on you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> yours is a beer one, so yours just suits you. Yeah, well, <laughs> when you get free merch, you take it. Um, but, yeah, you know, I've been doing well, all right. Just lots of work, lots of changes at work. Uh, yeah. Lots of chit chit changes. Chit 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 chit. So uh, yeah, but it just yeah, everything's been happening. It's crazy there at a moment. Yep. And uh, everything's hunky dory. Everything is going to be hunky dory. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, let's go on that. We we are doing another deep dive today. Yep. We are discussing the one and over, one and only Mr. David Bowie and his album Hunky Dory. Hey, I feel like. Every time we do these, we need like party poppers and stuff. <laughs> just so then when we like announce what album it is, we can just be like, hey. I kind of feel like we should also have like an air horn. <laughs> <laughs> I need to work on my DJ setup so I could have just the button on hand. <laughs> oh, man, that'd be great. I, I, would, I would love that. Because, you know, just in the middle of you going through this really deep, pivotal moment and I'm just going to drop an air horn on you. <laughs> Lucky I do all the controlling here. I'll find a way. <laughs> anyway, we digress. Let's get into Mr. David Bowie and his amazing 1971 album, his fourth studio album, Mr. Mr. Hunky Dory. Mr. Hunky Dory. <laughs> Hunky Dory. Uh, so this one's a bit different for us because it's not uh, a more recent album that's come out. It's a little bit different when dealing with uh, a person who – has so much history in the music industry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've always said that we want to try and touch on everything that we like. Um, and David Bowie is just an icon, really. Um, made it into my top ten singers list. Yep. At eight or nine-ish. Yeah. Seven, eight, nine-ish. I can't remember. But um, one of the most influential artists – of our generation or private generation, you could would say. Yeah, influenced um, a lot of the stuff we grew up listening to. Yeah, and he's just 
someone that, you know, whilst he wasn't a top 10 singer for me, he's still one of my all-time favourite artists. Yeah. You know, one of the, you know, some of my earliest memories of like forming music is based around David Bowie. Mm. Um, so we're going to be talking a little bit, a little bit, a bit about Bowie's history, um, but it's predominantly around the album because yeah. we, we could spend, you know, three hours just talking about Bowie and everything he's done. But we yeah. want to give Hunky Dory the love where it's due. Yep. All right. So shall we get into this? Yes. Let's go for it. All right. So we're going to talk briefly about Mr. Mr. Bowie. He was born David Robert Jones in Brixton, England on the 8th of January, 1947. Um, and apparently he shares his birthday with Elvis. Mm. I like him a lot more than Elvis. Yeah. Yeah. I would, yeah. I would much prefer to see David Bowie in person than uh, Elvis. Yeah. So, like, a bit about himself there. He's, he showed interest in both arts and music as a child and went on to study both music and art and design. Uh, he was considered quite a gifted child and apparently was a bit of a, bit of a brawler, a bit of a fighter. I didn't know that. No. Uh, it is kind of surprising, I guess. I mean, it, I, up until doing the research for this, I wasn't like, I didn't know a whole lot of Bowie mm. and, but he was never one I kind of pictured as a brawler. Yeah. I it, mean, it's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like he, when you think of Bowie, you kind of think of this kind of over the top flamboyant character in some regards. And then, you know, this folksy person. So, so to understand, to know that he was, you know, wasn't afraid to throw down at certain points is yeah. it's just a fun little side note. Yeah. Adds another layer, doesn't it? <laughs> that he's already <laughs> a quite multi-layered personality. and He's like an onion, as uh, they say in Shrek. Um, so to add to the brawler, um, it actually had something, it actually has something to do with why Bowie has... Uh, two different coloured eyes. Uh, so I'm assuming all diehards would know this fact anyway, but he got into a fight with one of his friends, a guy named George Underwood, uh, and the fight was over a girl. Underwood punched Bowie in the eye. After some surgery, he was left with some faulty depth perception and anisocuria, which is a permanently dilated pupil. This gives the false impression of a change of colour in his iris. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I just thought he was born with the two different colors. With two different colors. Which, but it's they're actually not two different colors as well. So with that anisocuria, it because yep. his pupils always dilated, his iris doesn't change shades like the other eye does. Yep. So the other eye is always going to be a slightly different color. Um yeah, I just thought that was an interesting little fact. Yeah. Um funny Funnily enough, though, uh, they remained friends and, in fact, worked together with Underwood creating some of Bowie's album artworks, including Hunky Dory. Which does quite prominently feature his eyes. and Well, he becomes iconic for it, doesn't it? I mean, most people know maybe one or two, if they're not fans of Mm -hmm. Bowie, they'd know a couple songs, but they also know the eyes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... So, yeah, I mean, like, and this, Bowie's gone on and done a whole bunch of different things. 
He's appeared in multiple different bands as well as venturing out on his own. Uh, some of the bands he went through beforehand was the Conrads, the King Bees, the Manesh Boys, the Lower Third, the Buzz, Riot Squad. Um, did a whole bunch of work with these bands, but you know, obviously none of them were really successful. Otherwise, we'd be probably talking about some of those bands. Um, he was previously known as Davy uh, Davy Jones, uh, but then made the change to David Bowie after the famous American pioneer James Bowie, uh, the man who popularized the knife. In April 1967, he released his first solo single, The Laughing Gnome, of his debut self-titled album. Uh, this was also unsuccess- unsuccessful and would mark a two-year absence from releasing any music. Uh, his second solo record was released in 1969. Uh, in the UK, it was <laughs> once again called David Bowie, but for the US version, it was called Man of Words, Man of Music. Um, in the later years, it would be re- renamed after the opening track, Space Oddity. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the album Space Oddity, he plays with uh, personas again, taking the role of Major Tom and launching into space. Although the song Space Oddity was fairly successful, the album itself once again on its release was not successful, Um, which is interesting because of how massive of a song Space Oddity is. Yeah. I mean, once again, I'm coming from the the viewpoint of someone who doesn't know or didn't know David Bowie very well, Mm -hmm. uh, like his history. I just assumed the album would have been, had some success. So, uh, yeah, first three albums all kind of duds. Yeah. I mean, well, they're the first two. The third one we speak about now um, was The Man Who Sold the World, which was mm. released in 1970. Uh, it was more of a hard rock style than his previous albums and featured some darker themes lyrically. But, uh, yeah, once again, it was unsuccessful. Uh, the UK version featured a photo of Bowie in a dress and fishnet stockings. It was one of his first experiments with costumes and gender this cover was actually rejected for the US release. Um, but yeah, uh, the album did fare a bit more successfully in the US, which resulted in his label booking a massive American press tour. It's amazing that like we always talk that the, the US is one of the hardest markets to crack. And I understand that this is the 1970s, so things are a little bit different. But like for him to not find much traction in the UK... I think it's interesting mm. and for it to be the US that kind of gets him to start getting, you know, the ball rolling on yeah. who he becomes. I find that it's always a con uh, in, uh, inverse of what's happened, you know, nowadays where it's just like, you know, you might have a bit more chance of getting success in the UK than the US. Mm. Well, the harder rock stylings on uh, the man who sold the world was something that was happening in the US So they gravitated to it a lot more. But America plays a large role in Bowie's life from from this press conference that he does, a press tour he does. Yeah, you kind of going through and researching this album, like looking into it, so so much inspiration is taken from this time that he spent across Mm. over in the States. Yeah. And it's amazing. It's just like, well, what if this, this, you know, Third album hadn't hit the its strides in the US. Yeah, what happens to Bowie then? It's like yeah. it is a what if. Yeah, because this man has so much. He, he went on to do so much more. Yeah, it's just like well, this is the point that 
some people are like, oh, okay. Definitely a sliding doors kind of moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so on that American press tour for The Man Who Sold the World, Bobby would take that dress that he wore on the front cover on the tour with him, wearing it during interviews, which actually got a positive reception from uh, the media who were <laughs> conducting the interviews. Uh, he'd also wear it out in public, which had a much more negative response with one man even pulling a gun on him and telling him to kiss his ass. Uh, this tour, like we just said, would play a large role in the writing for Hunky Dory. Yeah. So that's just where we are now in like in the timeline of where we get to for Hunky Dory. Obviously there's, you know, many more pages of the Bowie story that happen after Hunky Dory. But obviously we're today we're focusing purely on this album. Yeah, there, um, there, there is a lot more history before, but yeah. nothing else that really touches on hunky dory. Yep, I think we, I think that's they're the main kind of things. Yeah, you need to see where he's at. Yeah, and you know, obviously we, you know, we're not, we're not trying to diminish what he's done by any means. No, God no. <laughs> like I said, we just don't have enough time in this day. Um, so yeah, so during this tour is when he starts, starts getting his inspiration. He becomes a big fan of the American proto-punk artists, uh, people like Iggy Pop and Velvet Underground, um, in particular their lead singer, Lou Reed. Uh, during this time he would write up to about 30 songs during the trip uh, inspired by artists uh, and all those artists that I mentioned and the likes of Bob Dylan and Andy Warhol, the famous artist. Um, so a lot of these songs would be used on Hunky Dory and actually the one following. Mm. Uh, so most of the songs were composed on piano, which is uh, why Hunky Dory is such a piano forward record. Uh, this is opposed to how he was writing most of his material beforehand, which was with a guitar. Um, it was during this time he'd also create a new persona, an alien rock star that he called the <laughs> ultimate pop idol. Um, it was based on Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, uh, although we wouldn't find out till the album after Hunky Dory. Uh, this alien character was named Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. You know, years ago, I actually, because I loved Bowie, I actually had a, a corgi who I called Ziggy. Yeah? yeah? Yeah. I think it's interesting that both albums were essentially written on the one trip. Yeah. Um, And there is hints of it in Hunky Dory when you, like, when you know this information. Yeah. You can see, uh, you can kind of see how he gets there. Yeah. So on his return to England from the trip, he reformed his band with some additions. The band comprised of Mick Ronson on guitar and mellotron, Trevor Boulder on bass and trumpet, Mick Woodmansey on drums, and the famous Pog Maestro, Pog, Prog Maestro, Rick Wakeman on piano, who's famous from the band Yes. Uh, this band would later be named the Spiders from Mars minus Wakeman, who goes on to join Yes. Yeah. Uh, Bowie and the Future Spiders would enter Trident Studios on 8th of June 1971 to start recording what would become Hunky Dory. And Scott, an engineer who had previously worked with Bowie before and also was an engineer for the Beatles, uh, was selected to co-produce the album with Bowie. This would be Scott's first album as a producer, which is something he had told Bowie that he wanted to do. He accepted Bowie's invitation to co-produce this album as he thought it would be a good first step into the realm of production. Uh, not a bad 
<laughs> first album to yeah to produce <laughs> or to co-produce. It's amazing, like the the different types of talent that he gets into, because everyone like you you look at the people that everyone can do something else. Yeah, it's not like I'm just getting a bass player. Yeah, right, and, and guitarist. I'm getting a, someone who can do guitar and mellotron. I'm getting someone who can do bass and trumpet. Mm. I think it's good that he's like he, he, he was trying to find people that had a multitude of talents. Because going through and you listen to the song, there's a multitude of elements that are actually happening. Yeah, on so many of the songs. I mean, the easy one that stands out is um, Wakeman on piano. I mean, you can clearly hear his greatness all over this record. Yeah, but one who doesn't get mentioned a lot is Ronson, the guitarist. Who, without people knowing, his stamp is all over this record. Yeah, uh, he's a great guitar guitarist. Um, he also, as when we go through the track listing, um, he actually done all the string arrangements as well. Mm. And for me personally, the strings on this album are just amazing. Like they really take the album up yeah. a notch. Um. But yeah, it's it's. You, you just think about that though. They started recording the eighth of June, and it was released the seventeenth of December. Mm. That is a huge turnaround. Okay, oh, yeah, they admittedly, they were pumping out albums back then, though. Yeah, admittedly, you know, it's like I get it. He's already written like thirty odd songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. While he's on tour, but like to to kind of get it there and then produced in that time frame. Mm. It's pretty, pretty, pretty bloody quick. Mm. I mean, Ken Scott would later say how quick the sessions were. He claimed that Bowie was the only singer I worked with where every take was virtually a master. So I mean, that's pretty high praise. Oh yeah, when you've got, I mean, considering he was an engineer for the Beatles and has done a multitude of work, um, yeah. It's not like he's. <laughs> yeah, he's not surrounded by. Surrounded like, by like the, the likes of you and I. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, yeah, Hunky Dory was also a shift from the hard rock sounds of the man who sold the world to more art pop with mm. glistening melodies atop of a softer pop rock. Uh, there was more of an ambience in this album due to the focus being brought back to Bowie's voice and the piano. Yeah. Um. Interesting to note, the piano Wakeman used to record at Trident was the same piano used by Paul McCartney on Hey Jude and would later be used by Freddie Mercury on Bohemian Rhapsody. That's a pretty famous piano. Trident Studios is famous for the piano sound and obviously for that particular yeah. piano. Um, you know, there's many connections to David Bowie like we kind of alluded to at the beginning with yep. his influence Spreading wide and far. Um, Sorry, it's incredible to think of like looking back at that time, you know, he was kind of the forefront for so many that came before. Like, you know, this studio that proceeds to have some huge names go through it. And there was Bowie in like 1970 trying to, you know, make a completely different sound to what he's been before. Mm. And he's just there, you know, doing his thing. Well, he had the... uh, People were trying to work out if he was a one-hit wonder because he had Space Oddity yep. and that was it. Um, so he wasn't a big name when he entered that studio. Um, so 
Crazy. Yeah, it's funny how <laughs> how like now we add him to the list of oh he was one of the big names who yeah. recorded there at the time he wasn't. Yeah, it's just some people bloke. knew him, but yeah. he was only a bit of a one hit wonder at that point. So yep. Uh, so yeah, as I said, the album was released on the seventeenth of December, nineteen seventy one. Uh, it spawned signals of changes and uh, Life on Mars. Changes was released in January of 1971 and Life on Mars released as a single in June of 1973. Mm-hmm. So, so a year and a half later. Yep. Uh, Hunky Dory has, was met with quite high critical praise. It wasn't a commercial success at first. Sales for Hunky Dory would uh, eventually skyrocket thanks to the huge success of Bowie's next album, Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders of Mars. So again... Potentially a little bit of you concerned about, oh, has he really hit the mark? And then yeah, people have to kind of go back and rediscover Bowie. Yeah, yeah. Which is, but then again, like as we've kind of said and it still gets said today, met with very good like critical praise. Like musicians love it. People who know music loved this album. Yeah, I mean it got, uh, you know, through the media, they, it had a lot of praise. Yeah. Speaking on that, uh, with the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust, uh, Hunky Dory did pave the way for Ziggy Stardust. Bowie later said, it provided me for the first time with an actual audience. I mean, actual people coming up to me and saying, good album, good songs. That hadn't happened to me before. Must be a good feeling after, (laughs) by that point. That's his fifth album. Fifth album. He'll be like, oh, yeah, Yeah. good job, mate. Keep it up. You'll make it one day. So it's like, this is my fifth album. Uh, So, yeah. Uh, it was obviously met with very positive reviews from both sides of the pond. Uh, Melody Maker called it the most inventive piece of songwriting to have appeared on a record in a considerable time. Rock Magazine claimed that Bowie has the genius to be to the 70s what Lennon, McCartney, Jagger and Dylan were to the 60s. So that's quite high praise, yeah. especially for the time as well. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, yeah, like if you, you, you think about the people that came before him, you know, Although Mick Jagger's still around, but like it's like to be compared in that same breadth as those guys, yeah, is huge. Mm. Um, and to I, be compared to them with them still around, yeah, performing and playing. I mean, the Beatles, Beatles weren't the Beatles in the seventies, but yeah, that you know they're still the, the Beatles. <laughs> they're still the Beatles. Yeah, Dylan's still Dylan. Yeah. So, and like. Yeah. So going back, there's like there was a lot of retrospective articles written mm. about this, and like the main consensus being that this album is where Bowie became Bowie. Yeah, that's like the the underlying theme about all of the reviews and comments that people have made about Bowie is this this is where he finally became, you know, maybe not Davy Jones, but like he becomes David Bowie. Following Bowie's death in 2016, Rob Sheffield of Rolling Stone listed it as one of Bowie's essential albums. Writing Hunky Dory was the album where he staked his claim as the most altered ego in rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Several different websites have listed it as album to hear before you die. Um, it's like the type of grandeur of that. Yeah. It still to this day ends up on top 100 list of greatest albums of all time. Um, so, yeah, it's... Highly regarded, like you said, as the first album where Bowie really became Bowie. Yeah. Um, I've read a lot about how 
up until this album, everyone knew Bowie was a good songwriter, but the problem they had with him was that he was trying to almost copy and try and ride the coattails of what was happening in popular culture mm-hmm. instead of coming up with his own sound and, you know, really finding his own voice. So you can understand how Hunky Dory is seen as the first great um, Bowie album. Yeah. What I also found fascinating was just like, because we, we we go back to the thing about wasn't really a commercial success. Didn't sell more than 5,000 albums in the first quarter of its release. Yeah, which is insane to think about. Whereas now it's listed, yeah, like we said, top top uh, albums to listen to, you know, uh, such pivotal music in like rock and roll. It's just like, yet it wasn't, people didn't get it. Yeah. Um. So... Partly to blame, I guess, for the commercial success was his record label, RCA. Uh, They were hesitant to really push it due to the cover art, but also because Bowie had warned them that he was actually going to change his name for the next album. So I guess, in a way, it left him in a bit of a... (laughs) You you could say he was his own worst enemy on that regard. for a little bit. But um, going back to him finding his sound, um, Bowie would say about that time in his life, in the early 70s, it really started to all come together for me as to what it was that I liked doing. Bowie tells classic rock. It was a collision of musical styles. I found that I couldn't easily adopt brand loyalty or genre loyalty. I wasn't an R&B artist. I wasn't a folk artist. And I didn't see the point of trying to be that purist about it. My true style was that I loved the idea of putting Little Richard and Jackie Brell and the Velvet Underground backing them. What would that sound like? Nobody was doing that, at least not in the same way. So he, it's kind of like he had a a, a light bulb moment yeah. where he was just like, hang on, I'm, I am trying to copy other people. And once again, it, it harks back to that American trip, mm. going to see all those proto-punk bands, yeah, realising, you know, these people, like these bands and artists, have their own sound and him trying to find his own sound. I think it's, you know, the perfect perfect thing was like, you know, he he is from the uh, from England. He is from, you know, at that point there would have been a completely different sound to what he was hearing in the state. So he's already formed this particular sound. This is like, oh wait, there's this whole other thing, you know, yeah. now I have a chance to meld it all together and create my own sound. Yeah. So normally when we do the deep dives, we talk about where were you when you first did this album? Where were you, well, you know, when you first discovered this? Well, we weren't born when this album came no. out. So we can't really say, well, I remember being in my room when this album came out. It's not going to happen. So, like, I guess for something a bit different, like not necessarily this album, but how did you first come across Bowie? Um, it would have been through my parents. It would have just been hearing a single, you know, whether it be Changes or Space Oddity or something like that. Um, the first time I, it kind of, he kind of really entered my world was uh, Nirvana's Unplugged, uh, The Man Who Sold the World. Yep. 
And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a great song. I wonder who done the original. But David Bowie. I was like, oh, oh, that's cool. That's, that's, didn't expect that. And then, you know, as I keep going, you start reading interviews and you see that, uh, you know, Nine Inch Nails say he's an influence. Manson says he's an influence. Uh, all these bands that I was listening to at the time are, are citing him as an influence. And then you're like, well, why? Like, I, like, why is he? Why is he the influence? It wasn't until I was much older that you kind of start to listen with more mature ears and look at things differently. That you kind of go, oh, I, I can, I can see all the connections now. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until much later in my life that I really kind of started to respect. <laughs> well, not that I didn't respect Bowie, but like he, he kind of shot up my list of. Uh, artists who I should kind of take notice of. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about yourself? So I remembered, so it wasn't through my parents. It was actually through uh, a friend of mine who I believe you also named uh, Daniel Pralini. Mm-hmm. So this was when I was in year 11? Tw- uh, yeah, around that point, year 10, 11. And Prow, as he's known, and I were hanging out. And he's just like, oh, have you ever heard of David Bowie? I'm like, no, let's, you know, what's the go with him? You know, listen, I was like, oh, yeah, it's kind of cool. I think he played me Changes and a few other songs. I think it might have been Space Oddity. And so you kind of go in there. It's like getting more and more used to it. I was like, oh, yeah. You know, this is kind of a cool different sound. Um, But I remember, like, a key point that I actually kind of really – Fell in love with, uh, oh, he was, do you remember Rove? Yeah, Rove Live. Yeah. Yeah. So Bowie was on there. He was, <laughs> this is back in 2004-ish. I fucking hated Rove, so I'd never watched that. No one likes Rove and I don't, I, I mean, I didn't mind him. Because he wasn't funny and he was annoying. Yeah, but like some people feel that way about me. So, you know. I'm, I'm you know. <laughs> I'm not claiming you're well liked here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is fair. Um, but no, uh, so he was on there, and I just remember him being like really sassy towards Rove. Yeah, like, and barely giving it. Like uh, going back and watching, it, I think I was watching it with Prow, and Prow was really getting into it because he fucking hated Rove. Yeah, he's just like, yeah, fuck you, Rove, <laughs> and like getting into it because I think he was pr- promoting an upcoming show or something. So I actually had like a chance to go see him. But for some reason, I was just like, ah, oh, you know, I don't really want oh, to. Really? Yeah. It was one of those, you know, I should have gone. But, like, I think my mum was going to take me and proud to go see him. And then for some reason, I'm just, I just, I didn't want to go. Oh. I don't know why. I was a fucking teenager. I barely know what I was yeah. doing half the time. I barely know what I'm doing as a 34-year-old. Yeah. So from that point on, you go on and you just discover more and more of, you know, David Bowie. Like uh remember dating a girl and we both loved Bowie and so we had songs that we'd listen to of his all the time and more and more we just kept get really getting into, you know, you just develop more and more of an infatuation about him mm. to the point that, you know, this girl that I was dating and, you know, we'd end up breaking up and not talking for the day that Bowie passed. We both messaged each other basically at the same time when we found out mm. because he was such a big part of who we were as teenagers. It's like. 16, 17-year-olds. So it's uh, 
it, it's something that you know I, I've always had this pure uh, fascination about him. What do you think kind of made us want to focus on this one in particular, this particular album? I mean, um, for me personally, I didn't have an attachment to any album. The mm-hmm. only album before this that I had listened to all the way through properly was his last was Black Star. Um, I asked a friend who is a massive Bowie fan. She recommended starting here. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's about it. It is its 50th year anniversary this year, which, which is a nice little kind of bow to put on top. A nice little bow. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, no, I, I'm very much the same way. Like it, I think the other ones, it's easy to sometimes look at Ziggy Stardust because of, well, it's his magnus opus, isn't it? Yeah. Pretty much. So that gets a lot of attention, as does Black Star. Yeah, because it's his last. And he was telling everyone it was his last without anyone realizing it. Yeah. Um, Whereas, like, as we've said, like, you go back and people look at this album, they're just like, it's the line I keep going back to. This is where Bowie became Bowie. Mm. So let's look at, you know, how did he do that? I mean, like, and you go through, and we're going to go through the songs, but it's just like, like, oh, yeah, that song's great. Oh, yeah, that song's great. Yeah, fucking that song's great too. Yeah. And I I think also the album gets overshadowed by Changes and Life on Mars. Because mm. when you see them two on the album, like your eyes and your brain instantly goes to those two songs. <coughs> as as the casual fan, even if you want to get into Bowie, yeah. you could. You know changes, you know life on Mars. Um, I think that's also one of the other things is like Bowie has so many good songs but they're spread over so many different albums. Yeah. There's like if you're someone that's just like, I'm going to listen to this song because it's got X amount of his singles on it so I can, I'll feel more familiar with it. This one does have probably more songs on it that I recognize. But like I'm like, oh, yeah, fucking Space Oddity has this on it. Ziggy Stardust has this on it and I think, you know, this is where a lot of his good stuff is kept. In one yeah, album. yeah. I think, yeah. I mean, like I said, I can't, can't really judge it amongst the other albums as a whole, but it is a very well-rounded album. Yeah. All right. Let us start the dive into the actual songs with change. And my time was running wild A million dead-end streets And every time I thought I got it made It seemed the taste was not so sweet So I turned myself to face me But I've never caught a glimpse Of how the others must see the faker I'm much too fast to take that test Turn and face the strain. Turn 
Changes. Oh yeah. Uh, so Simon, you you actually did a little bit more work on this this week and uh, this week on this deep dive, and uh, actually you've kind of found to what some of the meanings behind some of the songs were. Yeah, I mean, changes is one of the obvious songs lyrically. Uh, he just is singing about young weirdos overtaking the old guard, and he's urging the old guard to change and face the unknown. Um, he's taking the sides. Of the weirdos, obviously. Um, there's there's not too much to to dive into with this one, but for me, this is the Bowie song. Um, in the same way that you know, Stairway is for Led Zeppelin or mm-hmm. fucking Roxanne for the Police or something. This, to me, when I think when someone says Bowie, I think changes. I mean, I guess the other song could be Heroes. Possibly for some people. I yep. mean, there's no right or wrong answer. No. But for me, it's always been changes. Yeah. I think I just also want to quickly point out before we get into much further. This back in the day, there were two sides. Like the when albums were released, there was a side one and a side two to the side vinyl. A, side B. Yeah. Yeah. And so the uh, so there's eleven tracks on this. First six tracks are all considered on the side one. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're the better ones, but like, so I just find that fascinating that you're going back to the time when you had to flip a record to hear the other songs. Yeah. I just, I just think that's kind of cool. <laughs> I don't know. I just want to throw that in there. I don't know. I grew up listening to records. Did you listen to records? when no. you? Oh, I did. Too. I mean, I had cassettes, yeah, which, which, you, which you occasionally had to flip if it didn't do it for it you. didn't have the auto. Yeah. Um, yeah anyway, anyway, back to changes. <laughs> I, was, I was just looking at something. I was like, oh, yeah, side one, side two. I mean, it's what is there to say about it? It's a classic. Um, I to me, it kind of has a theme song kind of feel to it. I don't know what it is about it. Just like that chorus, just has like a little theme song. Could be the theme song to yeah. something. I just, I just love the start with the piano. It's kind of just you can imagine walking down the street to it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I love how the horns. I love how the horns reach out. Love that. The shift. In the feel when the drums come in, yep. it kind of feels like half the band are getting dragged along with the <laughs> other. Like it's just, it's just phenomenal. Uh, the saxophone riff is catchy as fuck. Um, it's a classic song. It's also a, fa- a fairly good point that this is now Bowie because it's all piano. Yeah, this is like this is this is Bowie now. This is not so much on the guitar. Mm. To the point that there's no guitar. Yeah. It's just straight up piano leading the way with yeah. Bowie's voice coming to the forefront. Yeah. Yep. Classic. I mean, it's just it's just a tune. You can't really you can't really pick holes in a song like that. Not really. No. Not and if, really. And if you do, you're a monster. Um. All right. Next track. Oh, you pretty thing. Wake up your sleepy head Put on some clothes, shake up your bed Put another log on the fire for me I made some breakfast and coffee Look out my window, what do I see? A crack in the sky and a hand reaching down to me All the nightmares came today And it looks as though they're here to stay 
What are we coming to? No room for me, no fun for you. I think about a world to come where the books were found by the golden ones, written in vain, written it all by a puzzled man who questioned what we were here for. All the strangers came today, and it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, you pretty things, don't you know you're driving your puppets and puppets and say? Got. <laughs> uh, so lyrically for me, it seems to follow on from changes, but brings in a little bit of a sci-fi element, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. Um, he's once again siding with the younger generation, but this time he references Homo Superior as the change that's coming. Uh, this could be traced to Nisha's work, where he was apparently, he, which he was apparently a fan of. Um, Homo Superior being the next race after. Us homo sapiens. Ah, uh, yep, yep. That's just the term that has been coined. Um, I think Oh You Pretty Things hints that this album's going to be a diverse album because it is It is a bit of a shift from changes. It's not the biggest shift in the whole album, but it is a, a bit of a shift. Mine has a Lou Reed vibe to it, which is no surprise. As we mentioned, he was a big influence during uh, the writing of Hunky Dory. Uh, I really like the chorus. Yeah. I can picture a bunch of friends drunk at some dive bar, putting it on the jukebox and singing along to it. Um, I actually kind of like Bowie's voice in this song. He kind of has a – he's kind of like in in changes, he's very upbeat like, and it's quite high-pitched but – a higher tone to it whereas this one he kind of like moves all over the place yeah occasionally goes up then like in the chorus like he really you know you're driving me crazy so it's like oh shit you're getting down low and it's kind of goes all over the place and it, it just creates for these different elements that we talk about with these songs where he's just like different layers upon layers as again he's using his voice to create those layers yeah it's a song i hadn't heard before looking into this to be honest yep but um, yeah, I I like it. It's another. So you you hadn't really heard this song before. Like I said, I only really knew the hits of Bowie and the odd song here and there. So this is this is one of my favorite Bowie songs. It's one of the ones I remember mm. a lot from being younger. Yes, yeah. uh, is this uh, "Oh You Pretty Things," and it's just such a nice track. Um, again, showing us something a little bit different about himself. But yeah, it's. It's not much you can really say about it. It's like that's the that's the thing with this album. There's so many good songs that you just like. Yeah, I I like I like the shift that it does after changes. Yeah, or the the shift it causes after changes. Um, like I said, it it does hint that the album isn't going to be the same throughout. So expect changes. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that wasn't bad. Um, speaking of like. A shift in the tone. Mm. Eight line poem. 
This song's kind of a lie because there's ten lines to the song. There's eight. There's eight. There's ten. I'm yeah. looking at it right now. There's I had to eight. look up. I had to look up. One, two, three, four, five, six. There's nine. Eight. I've got nine here. Well, I'm not going to argue with you, but <laughs> I know what's eight because I looked it up. As <laughs> doing the research to see what the lyrics were about, yeah. I looked it up, and it's eight. And lyrically, I have no fucking idea what the song's about apart from a cactus trying to find its home. But um, I think the abstractness, not that that's a word, but the abstractness of the lyrics help push the melancholy feel of the song. Kind of got a like an Americana country swing to it. Kind of T-Rexy, Neil Young, kind of like America the Band. Um, it's the first time that we really hear guitar. Yeah, it is. It's... it's the guitar takes center stage for this one. Um, calling it an intermission is like rude. Like yeah. it's not it's not an intermission, but it kind of serves as one, but yeah. in a nicer way. Like I think it's a very good precursor to Life on Mars. So it reminds me of um, uh. When listening to it, it reminds me of back in uh, when was it? Two thousand and six or seven? One of the first times I attempted university. Uh, went to the bookstore, and you know, I was doing English as one of the subjects, and I was really into reading at that point. Not so much these days, but I should. Uh, and I got this book called The Dharma Bums by Jack Kerouac, who is a famous. American novelist, and it's about um, uh, the main premise is like it's based on a character who is going with this gypsy poet to help uh, talk about Buddhism and all these things. So it's about, it's about like those beatnik style characters of like the 60s and 50s. Um, and this song kind of has that I could imagine this in one of those, you know. San Francisco, like jazzy club type places, mm-hmm. where it's you could imagine this song being played at like an open mic night. Yeah, and I kind of has that feel where it's you know everyone's sitting around with a cigarette and coffee and you know beer or something like that, mm. and they're all like this guy's just up there telling his story, which is how I feel about this song. It definitely has that American feeling. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've. I've said Americana and I've said America the <laughs> band as well. Yeah. All come to mind. Um, so yeah, totally agree. And I believe he um became a fan of Jack Kerouac during that tour as yeah. well. That press tour. Yeah. So um it's interesting because yeah, I was 
just going back and looking at Kerouac and there he passed away a couple of years before he did the tour. Mm. So, but being around people like Iggy Pop and the Velvet Underground, I could imagine him being uh, shown Kerouac and being like, check out this guy. He would probably be very much down with what you're down with. Same with Andy Warhol. Mm. So, yeah, it's a very interesting song because it's just different. Yeah. Which is good. Yeah. And, yeah, like I said, it, it's because it's a poem. Yeah. Um, it does serve as an intermission. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I don't want to call it that. Yeah. But it, it is a cool – And it, it, it's a very good precursor, like I said. And it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's just basically like two instruments, a guitar and a piano. And David's Bowie's voice, which is like three, so it's, yeah, it's, everything's stripped back. But yeah, uh, is and then you move on to a song that's kind of filled with so many different elements, which is Life on Mars. Oh wait, I suppose you should say that Life on Mars. Now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a sad thing for For she's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools As they ask her to focus on So for me, this would probably be maybe top two all-time favorite Bowie songs. Mm. I fucking love this song. An absolute banger. Yeah, I reckon it would be up there for me. Um, yeah, it's a it's a banger. If you, if you're talking about as well all his space songs, yeah, it's top. <laughs> it, it beats Space Oddity. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it does for me. That's not taken away from Space Oddity. Yeah. I'm just saying, I, 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 songs... can, I can see that argument for it. Um, I just love, you know, we go from something that's really stripped back to something where there's all these different sounds. There's, there's string, there's piano, there's drums, there's guitar, there's the bass, which is wonderful. And this, the one, and it's just again going into the small things about the song, but like, Going and listening to the chorus, most of the time when people are doing uh, hitting a snare, it's generally that's a nice clean hit. But this one kind of has like a little roll on it when he hits it. Mm. I don't know if you you heard that, but it's just like it's like a yeah, it's got a bit of a buzz to it. Yeah, and it just kind of adds that little element to it. You're just like, or he's just filling out all these different levels on the song. Yeah, I think one thing I realized with this album was the production on it, considering it was Ken Scott's first actual 
productive her production role. Mm. Um, it's incredible. A lot of a lot of albums and songs from those times can sound tinny or a bit muddy. Yeah, but it's pretty clean, and like you do get a good bass sound. You do get good drums. The piano, like we've said, is a famous piano sound. Um, production. Yeah. Not on Just Life on Mars, on the whole album, it, it's brilliant. Um, so breaking the song down a bit, the song details the story of a young girl who goes to the movies to escape her mundane reality. Instead, she finds that the movie is the same mundane reality as her existence. The situation prompts her and, in this case, Bowie, to raise the question whether there is any life or art beyond what we already see. It also raises the more ex- uh, existential questions about whether escapism through art is possible when art is really a representation of reality, however popular or obscure. <laughs> um, he also famously stole the chord progression from Frank Sinatra's My Way. So, <laughs> according to Genius, in 1968, Bowie wrote the lyrics Even a Fool Learns to Love, set to the music of a 1967 French song. I'm going to butcher this. Comme de Habitut. Oh, yeah, of course. Composed by Claude Francio uh, and Jackie Ravu. Bowie's version was never released, but Paul Anker bought the rights to the original French version and rewrote it into My Way. Um, the song obviously made famous by Frank Sinatra in 1969. Um, and he pretty much stole the chord progression <laughs> as revenge. <laughs> um, another interesting note, like you mentioned earlier, Life of uh, Life on Mars was released as a single in 1973, which was actually during the height of the Ziggy Stardust era. Yeah. Um, which then obviously helped boost sales for this album. Yeah. Um, Which makes sense, you know. You've got a, an album based on a intergalactic pop hero, a pop idol. Mm. Why not release an album that's like, oh yeah, by the way, already talked about this previously. I, I, I'm, I think it was Hunky Dory, but mm. it could have been Ziggy Stardust. Um, was released the same year. Russia launched something into space. Like it, the, space was in the media, and he just yeah. happened to. To kind of hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Um, for me, I mean, clearly it's a classic. Um, but the strings at the end of the song mm. really kind of ascends the song from great to fucking great, in my opinion. Uh, like the string arrangements throughout this album are phenomenal. Yeah. But they uh, really stand out to me. I love like the um the woodwind flute stuff happening. In the chorus, and then like in uh, in the um, verse, and then like and then like suddenly it's just like, yeah. and then we start getting back into the serious point of asking it, asking if there's life on Mars. It's just like I just love the everything's like nice and peaceful, and then the automatic change of just like of the of the mood. You're like, oh shit. Right. Yeah, I I talk about the dynamics in a later song, but the dynamics throughout this whole album once again goes back to production. Um. It's just brilliant, and you know when he hits that not that high note on Mars. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I've tried to sing that a gabillion times and never hit it. Oh god! And I've probably hit it once, and it didn't sound anywhere <laughs> near as nice as what Bowie 
he just makes the note sound so nice. Like it's pleasant to listen to mm. instead of just being like, oh, wow, he hit a high note. It's like that That just sounds really pleasant. Yeah. It's just a, it's a brilliant, like it's one of the most brilliant Bowie songs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, next we look at a slightly different track. We're going to go to... Will you stay in a lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry Because we believe in you Soon you'll grow So take a chance With a couple of cooks Hung up on romancing Will you stay in a lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry Because we believe in you Soon you'll grow so take a chance with a couple of cooks hung up on romancing. So Cooks. Cooks. A song written and dedicated to his son. Yeah. And it really kind of seems like a song that somebody has written for their child. Yeah. Um he's pretty much asking if he'll stay with him and his wife as they're a bit odd compared to normal people. <laughs> um which is just a lovely, a lovely thing to write about. Yeah. Um, kind of not the sound, mm. but the swing feel the song has reminds me of like the Monkees and the Beatles. Yeah, I see that. Not not just the the swing feel, not yeah. anything else. Yeah. Um, I think the lazy trumpet line is a ton, touch of brilliance. <laughs> Her the harmonies are those kind of classical kind of harmonies you hear from songs back then and they're they're just lovely. What I like about this song though is that it's fun and it doesn't take itself seriously, unlike the next song. <laughs> but um yeah, it's just, it just brings the mood way up and that's what I love about yeah love about um this song. It's called Kooks. It's about him who's kooky. And it's a kooky song. Like yeah. it, it's just lovely. It, it It's nice that you have uh, Changes is a delightful song. Are You Pretty Things is a delightful song. Eight Line Poem is a little bit different. Life on Mars has a little bit of a serious tone at times, but yeah. you know, still sounds nice. I mean, thematically it's yeah. serious. But then Kooks is just like, hey, everyone, let's get together <laughs> and just have a good time. Let's have a good time for a few minutes. You could all just imagine like it being like – this is the type of one where it's just like if you're making a movie and you're going to have like a really over-the-top happy scene where everyone's getting together and like strolling down a street, you imagine Kooks being played. That sound has that like happy overtone yeah. all, throughout it all. And it's, you know, to me, uh, the reason I love it is, yeah, he wrote it for his son. Yeah. You know, and as a dad, I'm just like, fuck yeah. When I first put this album on to listen to, knowing that we were doing this album, by the end of the song, I realized I'd smiled the whole song. <laughs> yeah, you can't help it. But it's just a delightful song. Yeah. Great song. Uh, and like, you know, it's there's like strings and a little bit of trumpet, but it's just like it's kind of that like, yeah, like we've mentioned, like the short little beats kind of keep you bopping along, just kind of having a smile. Mm. It's just a well, well-crafted song and it kind of hits at a nice little point in the song, in the album. Yeah. I think also um, 
when artists tend to write about their kids, they tend to take a more serious or somber note. Yeah. While this sounds like something he could show, you could show a child this song and them not knowing what the song's about, yeah. enjoy the song. Yeah, like you can imagine Without this. getting the lyrical content behind it. You can imagine this on a kid's film. Yeah. Yeah, you can imagine this like. Uh, it's almost like he, he wrote it. I mean, he did write it for his son, but it's like, well, if I'm going to write it for my son, I might as well make it so he can enjoy it yeah. and not get bored <laughs> a minute into it. Yeah, I mean, like, am I going to write, you know, Space Oddity for my son? Uh, maybe when he's older and he could understand it, but, you know, yeah. as a. As a as a toddler, toddler, yeah, he kind of gets you. He's just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, he wants to dance around the yeah. the lounge. Put this on. Yeah, and we're gonna take a bit of a turn now with quicksand. I'm frightened by the total goal. Drawing to the ragged hole And I ain't got the power anymore No, I ain't got the power anymore I'm the twisted name on Garbo's eyes Living proof of Churchill's lies I'm destiny I'm torn between the light and dark Where others see their target Divine symmetry So something that I forgot to point out before, but this is with this album, three songs of this from this one album have been featured on Like A Version. Hmm. First one, uh, not just on the order of the album, but Life on Mars yep. was done by Sarah Blasco and okay. actually she did a stellar job at it. Uh-huh. Um, this next one, Quicksand, uh, I kind of forgot that it was actually a Bowie song the first time I heard it on like a version until I went back and re-listened to everything. I was like, oh, yeah, shit, that was on like a version. Yeah. That, I made that connection. So it was a band who you may remember, End of Fashion. I like End of Fashion. Yeah. They covered this. It's been covered quite a lot, I found, yeah. looking into it. Yeah, which is. I am surprised End of Fashion covered it. but They actually did a really good job. It was actually on the first like a version album. CD. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah, this yeah, is yeah. 2005. Five. So, but yeah, a bit of a uh, shift thematically though for the, uh, for where we're going with Mr. Bowie. Yeah, uh, there's a lot to unpack lyrically. Um, I'm not going to unpack it all, but just some of it. Uh, there's references to the Golden Dawn Association, which Alistair Crowley was a member of but left due to their radical ideas. Uh, he then went on to, you know, Form his own. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, there's references to the film Birth of a Nation, uh, Birth of a Nation, which was a silent film that glorified KKK activity that Heinrich Kimmler and Adolf Hitler loved. He also hypothesizes that most people believe their goals are benevolent and malevolent, whilst his goals exist in both. He questions religious beliefs that divinity is a cut-dry term as in light and dark and that divinity is actually ambiguous and a complex thing. Uh, the song seems to be Bowie asking what life is about and what happens when we die. It's probably thematically the most somber and depressing song on the album, I'd argue. Yeah. Um, it could be coupled with the next song, Feel Your Heart, mm. where Feel Your Heart offers an answer to the existential questions. But on the song itself, uh, sonically, this is the song where I was talking about dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, those guitar, they're not quite stabs, but those those few quick uh, quick hits of guitar almost blow your speakers when you when you're listening to it because the dynamic lift and the the kind of tension that it builds is phenomenal. Um, once again, that harps back to the the production, but also the performances. Um, it's actually one of my favorite songs off the album. I'd have yeah. to say. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I think uh, one of the things I read was that Bowie had always tried to make sure that his lyrics meant something, and you can definitely get that off this off this song, especially when you start to try and unpack it like I did. Um, just about every line he's referencing something like i said i only just done a quick snapshot um but yeah if if you want to unpack that song uh lyrically yeah that it you could be there for a while but it's it's a really thematically it's really a heavy song yeah there's and there's again they go back to the talk of um uh the superman uh, homo, homo superior. Yeah. Um. They also talk about uh Buddhist teachings in there uh, mm. with uh, Bardo. Yeah. It's it's interesting that he can go to so many different places, but in thinking in thinking of it, like as you said, he wants his lyrics to mean something. It kind of reminds me of my tattoos. I want all of my tattoos to mean something. Yeah. So on one arm, I've got you know, my three kids' toys that they've had since they were born that as video game characters. On the other arm, I've got like a Radiohead song that's got like, looks like I'm bleeding off my arm. Mm-hmm. So it's just like there is that duality of just like nice calmness with your kids and then there's the serious inner looking of yourself. Yeah. And I think we all have these questions of just like, you know, you know, of the, you know, I'm sinking in the quicksand of my thought. Yeah. We all have that, especially like how old, how old was Bowie at this point? Quick math. <laughs> so Bowie is 24 at this point. It's yeah. around like in your your mid to late 20s and you just had a kid and you're going on a tour of America and you're seeing all these different things for the first time and you're encountering all these different uh Thoughts and different, like we mentioned, like Jack Kerouac and uh, Iggy Pop and all these different strains of thoughts, and you're going to get a little bit confused by it all. 
And then I kind of love the fact that, yeah, all the guitars are playing and the piano's in there. Because again, it's just like the wave of thoughts that are going over the top of you. Yeah. It, it, when you when you put it into the context of his age as well, um, but at least for me and I dare say for most people, that's kind of when you start to really, really work out what your beliefs are and where you lie politically and socially and these questions pop up mm-hmm. and they get a serious they get a serious thinking over for the first time and then you keep doing that until you die <laughs> but um <laughs> that 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 time is when you do start to ask these kind of questions more seriously yep. and start to look at life a lot more differently but like i said this song could be coupled i don't know if he meant it i dare say he did cuz he seems to be an artist who Likes to thoroughly think there, out everything. There's a, there's a purpose in which he does things. Yeah, so I dare say that the next song is meant to be an answer. Maybe not the answer, but an answer for all these questions. Well, it's also the case of just like this is also the back in the day, this is the last track of side one or side A. Okay, yeah. Whereas the next track is the start of the ne- of is, you know, the response. A quicksand was the end of side A. Yes. Ah. (laughs) So the next track is Fill Your Heart. Fill your heart with love today. Don't play the game of time. Things that happened in the past only happened in your mind, only in your mind. Oh, forget your mind and you'll be free Writing's on the wall Free, And you can know it all if you choose Just remember lovers never lose Cause they are free of thoughts Unpure and of thoughts unkind Gentleness clears the soul Love cleans the mind and makes it free So, this is the only song on the album not written by Mr. Bowie. There's an outrage. uh, I'm signing off, I'm out. (laughs) But like you said, this is probably a good response to Quicksand. Yeah, so lyrically this song... uh, is escaping those questions that he posed in quicksand and instead filling your heart with love and being free. Um, the song sounds like that as well. The opening horns uh, clearly state that the tone of the song is completely different from quicksand. Uh, such a joyful sounding opener, which you bopping your head away. I, I dare <laughs> say you're listening to right now. Again, the strings add so much to the song. Uh, Mark Ronson who done the arrangements and was also the guitarist, done a fantastic fucking job with the strings on this album. Um, it's just a joyful song. Yeah, I think it's, it, it, it's similar in the sense that you just bop your head like kooks. Yeah. It, it has that sound to it, but with a bit more horn to it. Like yeah. A bit more happy horn, I guess you could say. Yeah. I don't know if you want us to use the term happy horn, but happy I'm going horn. to it. Um, uh, but yeah, it's 
it, it is that counterpoint to like the angstiness of quicksand. It's mm. just like, here, everyone, we've brought you down, but we're going to make you happy again. Yeah. And it, 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 going back and kind of like really kind of listening to the lyrics, you kind of just like, you know, this is, this is about love. This, you, you want to feel your heart. You want to cherish this moment with somebody else. Yeah. And it's nice to have the thought that, you know, Bowie's actually kind of going through. Maybe this, maybe Quicksand was like his thoughts prior to the birth of his son. And then Feel Your Heart is just like, well, I've got my wife, I've got my son, my heart is full. Maybe. I maybe. mean, he, he could have just sat down and thought, well, yeah. the best way to look at those questions is to escape him yeah. and not worry about those questions. Yeah, that's true. So... Because, you know, we can't really change those questions. So why? Those questions are always going to persist. Exactly. Like I said, you're going to think of them from your 20s to when you die. Shit. Unless you feel your heart. <laughs> but, but no, it's, it, it's just a, like that's one of the things we keep going back to in this song, in, on this album is there's just so many really good songs. Like there's so and, everything kind of just – and we, I talked about this in our first deep dive with Carnival, where I always thought that Carnival was that uh, the um, Marta was just a, like kind of like a best of, whereas Sound Awake was a better album because it flowed. Yep. This one kind of I feel is a really good flowing album. You've got yeah. The highs and the lows. Every, every point, like you could you could bail out. I would understand if you if you're like after quick quicksand, you're just like yeah, nah, I'm all good, man. Or even after the next track, you're like, yeah, no, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Mm. I think you could actually, it, it, it brings you back. There's little points throughout this album, and again, this, uh, this one here is one where it kind of draws you back in. It's like, oh yeah, let's, let's get back into hunky dory. Yeah, I mean, I've talked about the, the dynamics of this album sonically, but the dynamics that he brings in, just mood wise, and, um. You know the 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 feeling he he puts through his songs. You know you go from quicksand to feel your heart is mm. a huge jump. Yep. in dynamics as well. It's just a very well thought out and track listed. Yeah, <laughs> is not words, but <laughs> I'm sure people understand me. They know where you're going with it. But the uh, the thing with feel your heart. The way it ends, I think, leads perfectly once again into the next song. Into the next song, which is Andy Warhol. It's it's Warhol actually. Hole. It's hole. As in holes. What? Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol. Like hole. Dress my friends up just for show See them as they really are Put the people in my brain 
new pants to have a go I'd like to be a gallery Put you all inside my show Andy Warhol looks a scream Hand him on my woe Andy Warhol silver scream Can't tell them apart at all Now, mentioned Like A Version, track number three. Mm. That has been featured on Like A Version, again off the first album. Again, also covered quite frequently, I found. Yes, uh, by... Some band called uh, Life Outside of Andromeda. They're an indie band from Melbourne in the early 2000s. I never heard of them before in my life. Apparently they reformed in 2019, but I don't give a shit. Um, We're not here to talk about them. (laughs) No, fuck no. Um, Very different. My favourite song on the album. Really? Yeah. Fucking love it. Um, the, The electronic sounds... In that intro are just fucking brilliant. I love the weirdness. Um, the chatter between Bowie and Ken Scott. Uh, the way Bowie shows Scott how to properly say Warhol and then realising he's <laughs> recording and then bursting into laughter. It's just beautifully weird and odd. Um, it's an ode to Andy Warhol, mm. as we mentioned, was a big inspiration for Bowie. The famous uh, pop artist. Yep. Uh, pop artist? No. Pop art is what he done. Yeah. He's an artist. So yeah. I think it's the correct pronunciation. Yeah. Um, but we actually played him, played Andy Warhol this song before this was released um, in Andy Warhol's famous art factory. Uh, due to Warhol's lack of reaction, Bowie never knew if he liked the song or not. <laughs> uh Interestingly enough, years later, Bowie would also actually play Andy Warhol in a movie. Um, Bas- Basque? Basque? Oh, yeah, about Jean-Michael Basque. Uh, Basque. The, uh, the, um, uh, the person who was also very close to yeah. yeah. Yes. I actually did my year 12 art project on him. Did you? Yeah. It's fucking sick, man. He is sick. Never been able to say his name, as I just <laughs> proved. Um, I just love the weirdness of it. I love the simplicity of it. It's just a repeated guitar riff with a lead yeah. riff over the top um, and Bowie singing. I fucking it's, – it's probably my favourite guitar work on the album. Yeah. Because I just love the tune. Yeah. Like, it's just the simple nature of it all, but it's it sounds good. It's it's It, it again sounds like – to me it sounds like an uh, uh, eight-line poem in the sense that – it's very all strip. It's just stripped back, and it's just focusing on the guitar. Yep. Um, again, you can imagine this at a open mic night. You can imagine some in some oozy little coffee cafe thing where people are just smoking the green and enjoying some tunes. Yep. But, love it. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Love it. But, uh, it's also the first of a trilogy of tribute songs. Yeah, which is interesting. Hmm. That. I find that Bowie is such a creative dude and so out there with some of his thinking, but yet takes the time from an album to give out a tribute to some mates. I think that says about like, I think that says a lot about him and the friendships that he makes. Mm. Uh, It's also the time, as we'll talk about on the next song, uh, there were a lot of artists who would, 
write these odes to other artists. Mm. Um, but I agree. Three songs, it's a, you know, a chunk <laughs> of the album. But, uh, yeah, Andy Warhol is... Definitely worth going out listening to. Yeah. It, like, if you ta- want- if taking the classics or the two singles, taking out Changes and Life on Mars... Mm-hmm. Well, not even taking them out. This is probably my favourite off the album. Yeah. Yeah, I... Uh, a bit I, between this and Life on Mars, but I think Andy Warhol... I could understand. Just- I, could un- I could understand why you would make that. Yeah, but yeah. It's- and if anyone goes, oh, how, uh, uh, electronic fucking David Bowie, <laughs> he was Shut shit up. when he went into electronic. No, no, just just close-minded, like a fool. Yeah, just listen to the intro. It's the bass synth thing he has going on. Yeah, Melantron, I guess, is. Oh, <laughs> it, it's just a fucking good song. Yeah, shut up and listen to it. Yep, by all means. Now. The second of the tributes. Song for Bob Dylan. Number two in the trilogy of tributes. I'm gonna say <laughs> the second of the tributes. Yes, triple. How do you feel about it? It's my least favorite. Yeah, it's still a very good song. Uh, yeah, it's all right. Uh, it it doesn't it doesn't do anything for me. I think it's. Clever how he makes references lyrically mm-hmm. in the song. Um, it references Bob Dylan's song, Song to Woody, which Dylan wrote about Woody Guthrie, who's uh, a massive figure in the folk world. Uh, mm-hmm. The opening line almost mirrors the one of Dylan's song. Hey, hey, Woody Guthrie, I wrote you a song. Bowie instead sings, Oh, hear this Robert Zimmerman, I wrote a song for you. Robert Zimmerman being Bob Dylan's birth name. Yeah. Um, I'm not a fan of Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan's work at all. Yep. So it's possibly the reason why I'm not a fan of this song because he obviously lets a bit of Dylan influence come into the songwriting. Um, I don't have much to say about it, to be honest. Look, going back and like listening to the album, it's the le- it's the one that I like. Just then, I had to listen to it because I was like. Does it sound like again? Yeah. Like the other ones you know because they have an iconic sound. This is probably the least 
Bowie sounding song. It's still a nice song, but it's the least Bowie song. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. It's yeah. not a bad song. It's just... But it's like the first time we hear like an electric guitar really going for it, which is prevalent, which is previously it's just been a bit more rock or acoustic guitar. But now we kind of have like this yeah, solo thing going on. It's just like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, it's it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because like somebody I was reading in a review about it and somebody actually said, uh, Rice right, said this song is probably the weakest on the album. And uh, somebody else considered it. Considers it ill-regarded. I would have said weakest. Yeah. I mean, um, if you're getting, what's this, nine tracks into the album and you're just like, oh, finally one that I'm not that keen on, it's still a pretty good album. Yeah. You wouldn't say no to that if that was you, if the onset would release something like that. You'd be like, oh, somebody's gone through eight, eight hour songs and they finally don't like one. Cool. I mean, the good thing about Dylan's, uh, Dylan's, Bowie's songs compared to my bands is that Bowie's songs are only three minutes tops while <laughs> ours are like eight. So if you don't like our song, you got to strap in. Yeah, but that's because you get it. <laughs> Bowie, you could kind of go, ah, it, it's over before you kind of realize that you're like, uh. With your songs, it's like I've gotten six minutes in, then I get to the seventh minute. I'm like, not too sure about this, but then it gets, pulls me back in for the eighth. All right. <laughs> but yeah, so. Uh, Still worth listening to, folks, just so you can understand. Like, he obviously has such a, such reverence for, Bob Dylan, but it's just w- w- worth hearing his song just so you can understand why he. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't skip it, and I ne- I didn't skip it. Yeah. Whilst listening to it, but it, every time when it came to write down my notes to it, I was just like, "Meh, yeah, fine, yeah, fair enough." Now, the third track of the trilogy of of tribute songs, Queen Bitch. This is a tribute to Lou Reed. Um, more of a rock song, so he's obviously bringing in that Velvet Underground kind of sound. Uh, the guitar riff is lifted, let's put, let's say, <laughs> lifted from a 1960s song called Three Steps to Heaven by Eddie Cotron, who's famous for Summertime Blues, which is a great song. Mm-hmm. Um also, the killer's massive hit, Mr. Brightside, borrows from this song. The calling all cab section is a quite a lot like <laughs> melody in the middle section of Queen Bitch. Um, it's a great song, I think. Uh, for me, all I could write was that it was cool. Like, to me, it just oozes that leather jacket, yeah. cool kind of vibe. Uh, 
This uh, this song has like a driving across America feel to it. Like yeah, you could imagine, you could just, imagine, yeah, you could imagine, you could imagine this in like some uh, like nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties film of like somebody backpacking or traveling across the states, and they've got Queen Bitch playing. Yeah, yeah. This is Queens of the Stone Age in the seventies. Yeah, that kind of vibe. Not necessarily the sound, but the vibe of just. Yeah, I I find it interesting that he likes Lou Reed so much. Yeah, well, so apparently the Velvet Underground kickstarted Bowie's obsession with New York City, which he would live, he would live in New York. I think it's on and off mm-hmm. up until like the nineties, um, because through Velvet Underground and then eventually Lou Reed. He got, he found the, the, so New York City in the 70s was on the brink of bankruptcy. It was a fucking disgusting place. <laughs> it was filthy. And that's why it fed, that's why it brought out bands like Velvet Underground and Iggy Pop and things like that. Um, you know, there was heaps of homelessness. There was heaps of violence. The, the city was literally on the, the brink of bankruptcy. And I remember where, and I'm paraphrasing, but Bowie said that through Velvet Underground's songs, he could hear the grittiness and dirtiness of New York City, but he could also see the love of it, mm. which is why he became obsessed with it. So I think maybe, well, I don't think maybe, I dare say that has a lot to do with why he he fell in love with Lou Reed and Velvet Underground so much. Yeah. It's just interesting because I always find um, cause Lou Reed is kind of a divisive singer. Mm. There are folks that love Lou Reed. There are people that can't stand him. And But then again, I suppose Bowie didn't really take sides in a lot of things. Like, you know, he's hanging out with Warhol and Bob Dylan and then I don't know, I just didn't necessarily think that he would fit that scheme, but they worked together on a lot of things. Lou Reed. I think Lou Reed actually produced one of his later albums as well. Yeah, no, but I mean like this just the the forming of the friendship. Like because this is obviously early stages of it. Yeah. But you know, like hey, not saying that he shouldn't have been friends with Lou Reed or anything. It just it just strikes me as odd. No, I, I don't. I don't. I, it is odd. That's okay. But um, great fucking song. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it, it's it's kind of it. It reminds me though a bit of one of his later songs. Later songs, Suffragette City. It has that same kind of guitar riff sound to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just again, yeah, you, you, you can tell that it's got it got that goes. This is where he goes back to a bit more of his rock sound. Yeah. And you know he he's quote unquote still got it. Yeah. Because he can produce an awesome track like this. Yeah. Really cool song. Yeah. And we close it out with the Bewley Brothers. And so the story goes, they wore the clothes, they said the things to make it seem improbable. The will of a lie like the hope it was. 
And the good men tomorrow had their feet in the wallow And their heads are brawn with nicer shorn And how they bought their positions with saccharine and trust And the world was asleep to our latent fuss Sang the swirl through the streets like the crust of the sun If you live brothers In our wings that bark Flashing teeth of brass Standing tall in the dark Oh, and we were gone Hanging out with your dwarf man We were so turned on By your lack of conclusion The Beerly Brothers is really difficult to say. Um... It's an interesting way to finish the album, mm. but in listening to it, to me, it leads us into where Bowie's going next. In that context, yeah. This is a song which I thought was in a weird spot. Um, I quite like the song. Mm-hmm. It's a really kind of creepy and eerie way to end the album. Um, I think it would have worked better somewhere else. But um, in the context you said, it does does kind of work. Um, so quickly, apparently Bowie told uh, the producer Ken Scott that it's a song for the Americans because they always like to read into things and the lyrics make no sense. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, many people believe it's about Bowie's older brother, Terry Burns, who had schizophrenia and ended up being institutionalized and committing suicide after this album. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the lyrics should be viewed more as abstract visions of mental illness, which makes sense. But yes. they both also make sense because they are kind of nonsensical as well. Yes. Um, I do quite like it though. I think it's a good song. I like. It. I, I kind of like how it finishes off with the multiple layers of vocals. And you know, and if you're going to go with the context of schizophrenia, that's very much a key of it. Yeah. Um. It, it again, he kind of strips everything back a bit. Um, apart from you know, you little odds and ends here, but it's. Yeah, to me, it was a case of us like listening to this. I'm just like, I kind of, just from a sound standpoint, mm. I could see the, how this would lead into Ziggy. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see that. Yeah, but yeah, I, I, I couldn't see where you're coming from. Like, this could maybe, if this was like, round where Quicksand was, mm. you kind of like, uh, this is kind of like the. The low point or the valley of the yeah, of, of the, the album. album, and before we pick ourselves back up, and then would you say if you finish on on Queen Bitch, you're like, okay, yeah, mm. you know, that makes sense. But yeah, I, I so I see where you're coming from on that regard. Um, I just I really enjoy this song. Yeah, I don't think it takes anything away from the song being last. No, I think it makes it a weird finish to the album, though. Like, I don't think it serves the album as well as it could um that's obviously just a personal preference 
But um, would you say then, like going back again to Thamata, would you like? Is this change? Is this change part one? No, I don't think it ends like that. I don't think it. Okay, like it doesn't quite have the same impact as what change part one. Okay, does. just throw just throw that theory yeah, out no. there. I, yeah, it, like I said, I think there's nothing wrong with the song at all. I actually quite like the song. Mm. I think, like you said, if it was in a valley, let's say, yeah. with other songs like Quicksand, um, yeah, it just it because to me it kind of didn't make me want to listen to more Bowie. Yeah. Like yeah. not not because it was bad or anything, but it was kind of it was like, oh, I, guess I don't know if I want to listen to it, it, another. It kind of does have a fine out feel to it. You're just like, oh, yeah. I guess I'm done with the album. Yeah, kind of <laughs> thing. Yeah. Well, kind of. Yeah. I mean, it's once again, it, it it's neither here or right there. That's yeah. a personal preference, but yeah, I do really like the creepiness and eeriness of it. On a vibe he he gets going on it. Yeah. So yeah, I guess that wraps it up for the songs. Mm. So I think it's fairly normally when we get to this point we talk about, you know, does it stand the test of time? Does it does it has it aged well? Do we still think it's a great album? I think it's very easy to say that this is an all time great album that people need to listen to. Well, yeah, we're talking about it 50 years later. Yeah. Yeah, no, the 50th anniversary of this album is just like, well, this is fucking amazing. Mm. From just, if you're just looking at it purely musically, like, it's incredible. Like, the the layers, the levels, the, the dynamics, all these different elements to songs and then how... It's filtered in through multiple songs. Then he's just like, nah, fuck it. We're just playing with two guitars right now and I'm singing mm. and everyone can enjoy it. And then if you look at it lyrically, some of, some of the stuff is really deep and meaningful and then there's an ode to his son, you know. Yep. It's, this album has so much that people need to look at. Yeah, there's a lot of unpacking. I think, I think Bowie ended up shooting this album in the foot. Because he released Ziggy Stardust only six months later, mm. which obviously became a massive hit. Um, and even though it helped this album commercially, I think it will always overshadow this one, which mm. is a pity. Yeah. I think retrospectively now, people can look back and go, this is the one which Bowie became Bowie. But I think for a big period there, there would have been not that people would have not noticed this album or not liked this album even. It's just not the first album a lot of people jump to. Yeah, I I I see I see your point. I think if because the question is just like if he pushes back Ziggy another six months to a year and a half or some of like that. Where there's that big, where there's a bigger gap between the two albums. So I, I get it. He was pumping out albums nearly every year mm. for a while there. He's already had a couple of failures, yeah. quote unquote. This one, as we mentioned, only sold like five thousand copies. 
is he really is there enough goodwill to get the to get Ziggy out there to continue on I mean Obviously, we don't know, but yeah, I, I, like he, I, I get he, what you're saying. He didn't promote this album at all because he went straight back into the recording studio. Yeah, so he didn't even give this album the chance to potentially make the waves. It could have eventually, yeah. it eventually did. Um, but it's just one that once again, one of those sliding door moments where it's like, what happens if he did push it back? Would we have got Siggy? Yeah, uh, at all. Yeah. Um, but it's a brilliant album, and I think I think for people like myself, who I mean, I knew who Dylan was, but Dylan, I knew who Bowie was. Yeah. Um, but didn't really know where to start. I think this is the starting point and the best place to start, and then you can venture off into whichever direction you want because yeah. this has a bit of everything in it. Yeah, if you want to go into like just his straight up music, you would you look at his earlier stuff. If you want to, you want to go into his concept albums, then you would head towards Ziggy and all those sorts of things. Like this, but this to me is the perfect starting point if yeah. you're trying to get it to understand Bowie. Yeah, and I guess that will wrap us up for this deep dive. Uh, good to get back into it. It is. Um, we're planning on. Doing doing it way more often. So yeah. Hopefully a lot sooner will be the next one. Yeah, we just gotta narrow it down. We're I think we're down to like two bands that we need to decide upon. Something like that. We just gotta we gotta pick one. We'll be there soon. Yeah. Uh but as always, we would love to hear what you think. Let us know what what you like about Bowie, if you particularly enjoy Hunky Dory, all those good things. So you can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ultra of noise. You can check out Simon's band at facebook.com slash the unset. Uh, you can check me out on Twitch at twitch.tv slash maddogwilesy. And we will be back with another episode soon. So in the meantime, folks, stay safe and we'll see you all in the next episode. Bye.